Ali Baker. She, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Kit Whitfield, author of World Fantasy Award shortlisted In Great Waters, Bareback Benighted, and In the Heart of Hidden Things. Hello, what have you been up to recently? Hi, um, it's lovely to be here. Um, also she, her. And what I've been doing most recently is m my most recent book, In the Heart of Hidden Things, just came out a couple of months ago. And the audiobook, which I'm really excited about, because I absolutely love the performer who reads it. Her name's Renita McMahon, and she's just the cat's pajamas. That came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so I am getting to grips with talking about that in public. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the sequel to it is with my editor at the moment, who has got back to say that she's enthusiastic and will be sending me her editorial notes shortly. So I will soon be rewriting the sequel, which is a giant, enormous monster of a book that got way... It, it ended up covering <laughs> like six generations. <laughs> oh my gosh! 80 years and like okay I'm going to talk about this character and then I'm going to talk about his grandfather but then to talk about his grandfather I have to talk about his grandfather's childhood which means talking about his grandfather's <laughs> grandfather and it's just like I know this is really stupid and I could be giving myself an easier time but I just I can't help it I've made it up now this is what's happened to my imaginary friends and um, I'm yeah. just I, it's like me wrestling, wrestling an octopus, that draft, but it's in and I'm waiting to hear yes. for the yeah. and how to cut it down. Right. Yeah, you, you, have to, you have to do the thing before cutting mm. it back anyway, don't you? It's not... Yeah, I remember uh, a writing class teacher saying, first draft like a spendthrift, edit like a miser. Oh, right. Oh, that's really good advice. Yeah. He had a lot of good sayings, that guy. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean... The cover of In the Heart of Hidden Things is so beautiful oh, and it's it. such a such a gorgeous object. So it yeah. really is, isn't it? I like I love stroking the, the hardback. It's <laughs> That didn't, oh, that came out wrong, but you know what I mean? It's just yes, a yes. texture, it's lovely to handle. I love the colours. I saw the first PDF of it and I just got this big smile on my face. It's just so striking. Yes, it is really gorgeous. It's something I think that is is quite a feature of a lot of modern fantasy. Um, there's some absolutely astonishing artists yeah. working at the moment and it's it's just delightful it's a trend yes. I really like well one thing I loved about the cover was that they were they were really receptive to me putting in ideas uh like for example I talked about how I loved old woodcuts and botanical illustrations and they've got those lovely blackberries around the edges which you can see the influence of mm. that kind of fine detail and the flame around the edge. I mentioned that I'm a big fan of the artist Jenna Barton. Um, uh, that's J-E-N-N-A-B-A-R-T-O-N. -N -A and uh, I mentioned that as a stylistic influence they might look at. And it's very clear that they've done that. And that flame wrapped around it is very inspired by 
her work. So they they really put a lot of thought into how to match it to the style, how to make it suitable, and also just to make it really eye-catching. I, I love that um, I did a signing with the Forbidden Planet stall at Comic-Con. Oh, wow. And I noticed that quite a lot of people, even if, like, scamps, they didn't buy the book. A lot of people... <laughs> who didn't stop at the stall, did turn their heads to look at it as they went past. And I was just thinking, this is so good because, yeah, you know, everybody says covers need to be eye-catching. But yeah, I got such a big smile when I saw that design. It is and lovely. I'll put a link to um, Jenna Barton in the, in the show notes so people can have a look at, at her and also at, you know, the cover of, of In the Heart of Hidden Things and, and they'll see what, what we mean. So, yeah. Cool. Um, so let's start talking about books. Um, yeah. So your choice was The Stream That Stood Still by uh, Beverly Nichol, who we found out is a man. I never <laughs> knew that. I, Me I, neither. In fact, I, I reread it to Bone Up and it is actually dedicated to Jill and Judy Nichols with love from their wicked uncle. So yes. He mentioned he was a man in the dedication. <laughs> I think I just sort of refused to believe it because that didn't make sense to me. I, <laughs> I, I think I, I didn't used to read anything except starting on, you know, the first page of the book. I didn't used to look at anything else. I did sometimes then go back and look at, you know, other books. If they had blurbs at the back, but yeah, I think. And this was published in 1975. Um, yes, so. it's. I believe it's out of print now, uh, yeah. although the book it's a sequel to, The Tree That Sat Down, is available. Mm. Um, I, I don't know why they didn't put the, the other two, the, the third one in the series is called The Mountain of Magic. Which, which I'd never heard of. I confess to not having read it. I, I had a copy as a kid, but I bounced off it because it didn't have a stronger start as the other two. Right, yeah. Um, the the, the first two hit the ground running and the mountain of magic begins with the two child protagonists just getting up and saying okay we're going on a day out right and, uh, compared with a surly ruffian knocks on the door of a witch saying i'm gonna get revenge which is how the stream that stood still yeah. opens its first chapter <laughs> that's yes. very captivating yeah, so could you summarise the plot for us? Yes, well, it's a sequel to, like I said, The Tree That Sat Down, but you don't really need to know anything mm. about that because it's about the children of the heroine of the first book. And it has the same antagonists who are motivated by revenge against the family. But since they're also presented as explicit lovers of evil, like it, there's a, a surly ruffian called Sam and a witch called Miss Smith, who's very twee. And she has three grinning toads called Shadrach, Misak and Abednego. And there's one point where Sam calls them ugly as sin. And she says, as beautiful as sin, you mean? Mm. So, you know, you don't really need much more motivation than they love sin. They love wickedness and they're tremendous fun watching them have yes. so much fun being bad people so it does stand alone the um the plot is 
the witch and Sam decide they are going to show the royal family in the magic wood, which is populated by subjects who are talking animals. That, but the royal family are humans. They're going to show them what for, mm. out of love of evil. <laughs> and um, they cast a wicked spell on the son, Jack, and turn him into a fish, throw him into the stream, have him imprisoned by the great pike, which used to be a wicked money lender who preyed upon widows and orphans called mm. Sir Pike, uh, but got turned into a pike because he annoyed another witch by using up all the widows and orphans that she'd meant to go after. <laughs> uh, so Jack is thrown into the stream and kept prisoner by the pike with a view to asking for a ransom. His older sister, Jill, to rescue him, takes advice from her granny, who's evidently a good witch, although they, don't, they only use the word witch for bad people. She goes on a little quest, constructs a magic mask that lets her breathe underwater, goes into the stream, makes friends with all the fish, and starts on a rescue mission for Jack, which ultimately involves collaborating with the beavers and kind of I like to think of it as unionizing the fish to create a sort of fish uprising the fish all swim upstream the build the beavers build a dam to strand the pike while a couple of little sticklebacks quickly go and rescue Jack and the pike is stranded on dry land uh, that puts paid to the pike the witch and Sam are defeated Jack is rescued it's all good. Um, so that's, it's a very, if I say a very normal kind of plot for that kind of story, I mm. think you know what I mean, but it's very vividly written. It's yes. full of these beautiful little concrete details, which I suspect is why you thought it was a good comparison mm. to Otherland, although yeah, <laughs> you may have different reasons. Um, it's, I just have very physical memories of reading it, just sitting in my bedroom as a kid, coming across these little moments and going, mm. oh, I can so picture that. Yeah, I, one of the things, I don't remember reading this as a child. I know, I know it was around, because mm. I think it might have been in my classroom library at primary school. I know, mm. I know some of my friends at primary school read it and loved it. I don't know why I didn't read it, but on the back it says uh, the Sunday Times Paul quote is quite enchanting. Like Alice, it seems for any age. And I did think that it did have elements of Alice in Wonderland in it, but and also kind of other children adventure stories. But it also reminded me a lot of um, the Narnia books. Um, and I don't know whether that was because of the talking animals and the beavers and, and so on, which are obviously such a big part of Narnia, but also it's very funny. It's, it's, got, it's got a wicked sense of humour. Yes. yes. And I think as an adult, I can see how much Nichols was enjoying yes. writing the witch, who's very twinkly, and Sam, who's very surly, and the three toads, who are basically just gangsters. Yeah. And you can, you know, the good characters are very wholesome indeed. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Although they're tolerable for all their wholesomeness. They're, they're just like really nice. Yeah. But 
um, they're considerate, you know. Yes. Uh, but the the wicked characters are just they love being wicked, and you can tell it's because Nichols really loved writing characters who would like that. Like um, the first scene where um, the witch introduces. I've marked the passage actually. It's just a few sentences. Oh, go for it. Yeah. Uh, oh yes, I reread it going through little ripped up bits of paperback. Uh, pa paperback? A uh, post-it note. That's All right. That makes much more sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the 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 toads are summoned. Um, they've been hiding in the fridge. Yes. For a moment, nothing happened. Then out of the refrigerator, one by one, slithered the three toads who were the witch's special pets. They dropped onto the floor with a heavy thud like lumps of ice because they were frozen almost solid. There they sat, squinting and blinking and shaking the frost off their backs. Did you ever see anything so adorable? demanded the witch, patting their hideous heads. They always sleep in the refrigerator. It keeps them so fresh and sweet. This is Shadrach, this is Meshach, and this is Abednego. They all look alike to me, growled Sam. All as ugly as sin. As beautiful as sin, you mean, corrected the witch, to whom sin was naturally a very good thing. She turned to the toads. Do you remember this gentleman, she asked. Yup, croaked the toads, spit in his eye. And they took three steps forward. <laughs> and <laughs> you can just hear the lovely rhythm of the different ways that each of them speak. Yes. Um, and the, the very, um, like the shortened staccato way the toads speak, the surliness and resentment of Sam and the very sugared over. The witch has presented us like she'd probably be hideous if she didn't have her face all constructed from makeup and prosthetics. Yes. But little puffs of green smoke emerge from her nostrils, which Nichols refers to as quite bad manners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And just this wit in how they're described. And I mean, I did not really take to the Narnia books as a child. Um, and as an adult, I really can't stand them, I have to admit, because I feel there's something mean-spirited in the didacticism of them. I mean, mm. my most charitable way of looking at it would be to say that I think Lewis was sort of writing cringe about his pre-conversion self. Yes. And being, therefore, really quite brutal and not very interested in seeing into how people he disagreed with thought mm. so I yeah. don't think he um so when he writes villainous characters um I think he enjoys it when they're a bit of a dominatrix but oh yeah uh, <laughs> yeah but I don't think he um can really get past his contempt for them whereas yes. Whereas Nichols, I think, just thinks, you know what, I'm going to pretend to be a baddie in this scene and I'm going to have such fun. Yeah. And I I mean, I, when I was a child, my dad read me all of the Narnia books. I mean, my dad read me, read to me every night until I was 11, which oh. is quite a thing to do, quite a commitment. Um, and to my two younger sisters, actually. So he'd read a chapter of a book to me, then to 
my next in age sister and then to my younger sister I mean can you imagine that but yeah my dad my dad is an absolute oh you're talking to somebody who told the Gruffalo literally a thousand nights in a row yes <laughs> my, yes my son wanted the Gruffalo every night for three years and the fact that I don't hate it is the biggest <laughs> compliment to Julia Donaldson I could possibly imagine I still yeah. quite like it after a thousand nights well, for, for my stepson, it was Mog's Christmas Calamity, which oh. we started reading at Christmas and we were still reading in July. <laughs> and then he'd heard enough and he didn't want to read it anymore. But yeah. Um, so, yes, I, I do. I knew because my family is uh, I was brought up Anglo-Catholic. My family are quite religious. My parents are very religious. So I didn't always knew that Aslan was Jesus. This was not any kind of betrayal to me. But I know that other people did find it a betrayal when they realised to the extent of the proselytising that, uh, that, that Lewis was doing. And yeah, and, and of course, there's always the, the Susan problem. Always. Yes. And people argue about that left, right and centre. But the, yeah, the is, I, what I would say is it's not so much I felt betrayed at seeing he was proselytising. I just think he was preaching to the choir and didn't do a very good job of proselytising to. Yeah. I think even when he let himself just write fantasy fiction. Great. You know, he <laughs> he was on form there. Yeah. But when so much of his religion seemed to be expressed by a love of power rather than mm. a love of goodness that I kind of thought, okay, I get that Aslan is a religion in this first book, but why would they worship him? He just seems very full of himself and, <laughs> and not all that great, really. You know, I don't think he did a very good job of conveying why you would worship Jesus, except just that he's Jesus and that's what you're supposed to do. In yeah. the same way that the goodness of the characters or the badness of the characters felt very... He sort of mixed in positive virtues like being brave and helpful or being yeah. mean and unpleasant, along with really personal and silly stuff like Shasta being white raised in Arabic countries instinctively loves bacon and eggs more than oh god yes. <laughs> yes or or, car or like is it when Jill fall falls off the cliff or is it used yeah. to off the cliff um that just I think that was the point I stopped reading as a child because I just thought that I didn't have the word for it but I thought that is so contrived you want one of your characters to commit a sin so that they can be penalized for it and I just, and that's clearly why it happened. It doesn't feel character motivated. So I think it was just things like that that made me think, yeah, I just think you're being a bit mean here. I Oh, I agree. And I don't like the way that Lewis punishes children for the acts that their, their parents do. So like Eustace is punished oh, yes. His for having... Were obviously socialists he just doesn't yes. use the word but the problem is that his parents are socialists and yes and dude have you read the gospels i mean come yeah. on yeah yeah <laughs> yes exactly so yeah no, no i do with a little liberation theology i think oh definitely so <laughs> yes 
Um, I yeah, mean, I think as a child, I reacted to it more as a writing issue than a theological issue. And I think as an adult, I see it as theology getting in the way of writing. I just don't think he was great at integrating the two, which I realise not everybody thinks this. And I know Christians who feel that he expressed something that helped them think through their own spiritual mm. experiences. And, you know, if, if, if they got something out of it, then that's great. I don't want to spoil anyone else's mm. mind. But I yeah. certainly like Nichols more than Lewis as a child. Absolutely. Something that did strike me, which um, I, I, just having seen that this was published in 1975, it kind of feels old fashioned for 1975. It does feel like a 1950s children's book. It does. I'll tell you something that I think it has in common with Lewis. I think they're both very influenced by Edith Nesbitt. Yes, very much so. Like the way that both will turn to you and like in the last chapter, um, Nichols begins by by saying, and now we must leave the magic wood and the magic room with the towers and domes of the magic palace floating like golden bubbles above the green trees mm. for our story is at an end. But then, but what about Sam and the witch, you may ask, and the toads? Those Ooh. nasty creatures, surely you do not want to hear more about them. You do? Yes. Well, I positively refuse to tell you. All I will say, and it is more than I meant to say, is that they are not dead. I am afraid we shall hear more of them later on. And that sort of friendly conspiratorial address to the reader. Yeah. That's something that that's did a lot. Very much, yeah. Herself. I, yeah. That was an, and interestingly, that was a thing that put me off Lewis because there was a sort of hearty uncle who doesn't yeah. really know anything about kids turned turn to it. I mean, I actually, my uncles are nice, so just no, yeah. nothing against my own uncles. But it felt like the talking to children of somebody who doesn't really know much about children, whereas Nesbitt feels yeah. like a mother. And Nichols, I think, because of his slight wicked sense of humour, that like that feels like he's genuinely conspiring with you. He's pretending yes. that you don't want to hear about the wicked characters, but of course you do, because so does he. he well, just I think it's more. it's a difference between having respect for your readers and pandering to your readers. So, yeah. really, really good children's literature is obviously written for everybody. It's mm -hmm. just that it's accessible for children yeah um but if you have the parents you have to read it aloud <laughs> yeah or teachers or you know anyone else who's who's reading aloud to children but it's it's enjoyable for everybody mm. whereas very very i i feel that lewis patronized his child readers mm. and uh and didn't trust them to come to their own judgments yeah. about people so he also didn't trust them to catch him out when yes. he was forcing the plot. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk then about who the protagonist is. You've mentioned protagonists and antagonists. Yes. And reading this book, the person I'm most interested in is Miss Smith. <laughs> I love Miss Smith. She's absolutely great. I mean, she lives in, you know, it says at the beginning of the book that like she's a modern young witch and she lives, she looks like she's about 25, but actually she's 300. And uh, she lives in um, Hampstead Garden City. Now, I would not have known where Hampstead Garden City was 
as a child, I wouldn't have known where Welling Garden City was, which is near where I grew up. So mm. it's like she lives in a new town. She's yeah. not like in the middle of a, a dark and stormy wood and mm. in a broken down hovel. She lives Nor an in an ancient towered city. Even. Yeah. She's in a she, new she lives in a new town. And I love that. I think that's so funny. And it does talk about, you know, her having a dustbin where she keeps you know, some of the tons the toads are and they live in a fridge and, you know, all the rest of it. So it's like, it's all sort of an all the mod cons house. And it's hilarious. Into the magic wood. Yes. It's very, very <laughs> funny. Um, and I, I do, I do love that. Um, and he manages to pull off that modern fairy tale balance, which is a very delicate balancing act, without coming across as arch, which yes. I think is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, she, she is. She's uh, yeah, she's just brilliant. So, but maybe because I didn't read the first book. I didn't find Judy, uh, Mrs. Judy, I liked, mm. but I That's didn't find... which grandmother. Yeah, yeah, the grandmother. I didn't find Ju Judy has, uh, and Jill as interesting. I mean, Judy, obviously, you know, she's barely there. She's a princess now. So who... Judy who, being the heroine of the first book and yes. Jill the second. Yes. Who And, and Jill, I kind of got annoyed with her because she kept getting... Um, uh, she kept getting tricked, you know, having been told, don't do this, don't do that. She immediately goes, oh, look, there's a small boy who's lost his rabbit. I must go and help him. Oh, there's a magical lady in a boat pulled along by three white swans. Oh, she's clearly a goodie. Uh, and I got a bit annoyed. with her. This is when she's on her quest. to. Yes. You see, I... I think what I remember looking back on that is she's given a magic wand, which just looks like an old stick. But if you touch somebody with it, if they're good, they get better. And if they're yeah. bad, they get worse. So a yes. grandmother says, you know, Jill conscientiously says, well, what if I touch a good person with it? Will it hurt them? And the grandmother says, no, no, they, they might find themselves covered in roses or their trousers might get turned to gold, but that wouldn't hurt them. <laughs> but who cares about that? Yeah. And I think reading it as a kid, I think I just sort of had that, obviously this is bad, but you know what? Go poke it with a stick because I want to see what happens when you do. Yeah, yeah. And she... once, once Judy gets into the stream, yes, I actually quite liked that she's put in situations where she has to be tactful. Yes. And her courtesy is what gets the fish to rally behind her in the end like there's a point where she meets the lord of the lord salmon who is the yeah lord. i mean it's an old-fashioned enough book that there's a you know they have a police officer and they they have a lord of the, the yeah. in effect. but um when she says to him I, I need to get my brother back he's been turned into a fish uh the salmon looks a little offended and says well do you think it's all that bad being a fish and she has to think about it quite carefully before she says, well, I don't think it's bad to be a fish, but I think it's bad to be changed into a fish if you're a human in the same way a fish wouldn't want to be changed out of being a fish into a human. And I remember reading that as a kid and thinking, yeah, good for you, because kids do get put in situations where you have to give the right answer or you're going to get into trouble. So that felt like 
it's not a word I love, but it felt like a relatable moment. Yes. So yeah. I think I felt that I liked that Jill had to display social intelligence to get through yes. things. And the yeah. touching stuff that was obviously suspicious. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, go press the button. We all want to know what will happen when you do. Yeah, and, and she does, she grows as a character. She learns and she displays a great deal of courage, I think. Mm -hmm. And I like that about her because she's displaying courage as a girl. Mm. And in a lot of 1970s children's fiction, it was sort of like, oh, and before, it's you're as good as a boy or you, you know, you, you have to be like a boy. And I like that she doesn't have to be like a boy. There is and unfortunately one moment where Nichols says her expression is more like that of a boy. Yeah. But then, but, but then he just moves past it and gets yeah. over it. And she ends up, I think, headbutting Sam in the stomach when he tries to stop yes. the fever. But she, she wins a fish fight. A fish fight? A fish <laughs> well, it's a fish fight in that she's pushed off the dam. The little fish all rally together under yeah. her feet and push her back up. And it's a very moving moment. And yes. then she just chins the villain. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like, hey, this is really exciting. Yeah. And it's, it's that, that's quite unusual in children's yes. science fiction uh, of, of that era to have, I mean, obviously we know that Sam is a baddie. He's introduced to us as a baddie. Mm. And so we can feel, oh, it's okay. It's okay to hit a baddie. Mm. Um, but it, it's quite, she's, she hits him physically. It's not like she uses a weapon. Yeah. And then, you know, so in a lot of children's fantasy fiction, they, they have to learn how to use weapons in order to defeat adults. Mm. And, and she doesn't have to do that. She, yeah, she, she nuts just him. nuts him. <laughs> and also, while she has the advice of Mrs. Judy, the good witch, mm. in the back of her mind, the majority of the time, she is acting alone. Yeah. She's given a great deal of agency. Mm. And I really like that. It's, it's, uh, and oh, and she, she doesn't have to dress up as a boy. She's mm. actually going out in, in a dress, in her yeah. normal clothes. And, you know, there's, there's no need for her to, to wear special things. There's no need for her to pretend to be anything that she's not. She is good enough as herself. That's and great. Also she, and she's allowed to display feminine qualities which yes. help her. Like, she's, she's thoughtful of other people's feelings. She's kind. She's nice. And this is why the fish help her, because yeah. it's a collaborative effort to rescue her brother. But that is done by her with help that was offered freely not because they had to because she was the princess uh, or because they owed her any kind of fealty yeah. it's quite clear when she arrives in the stream they're a bit suspicious of her does she have any hooks does yeah. she have any hands um but the fact that the fish are willing to help her is entirely down to her soft skills let's yes. say yes but that yeah. doesn't mean that she's physically unable to, you know, throw a punch if she has to. Absolutely. And run carrying fish in her hands. It's, yeah, it, a combination of physical adventure and, and virtue, I think, stops it from being too sappy, which yeah. it could very easily have been. Oh, definitely. And I think that, actually, I think it would still be enjoyable for children to read now. I'm actually going to pass this on 
to my niece, uh, my oldest niece, uh, who's an absolute bookworm. She's like my mini me. Um, um, And I think she'll like it. I think she'll really enjoy it. Okay, so our other book that we that you've already mentioned is Otherland by Louise Stowell. And this mm-hmm. was published uh, last year, 2021. So it's a very contemporary book. Um, Louis has a new book uh, published, uh, a new series published about Loki, um, the god, Norse uh, god of tricks, who um, mm. is kicked out of, of uh, Norse uh, god land um, and ca- has to come and be reclaimed by, by being a... Uh, a human child and they are hilarious um for slightly younger readers there than uh, other land i think which is sort of i'd say nine to twelve year olds mm. uh, eight to twelve year olds um you know not because of the difficulty of the reading but because of some of the elements of the book are quite scary and i think younger children might unless they were very strong-minded younger children, <laughs> might find it a bit of a challenge to read. Um, there's, there's not even, it's not just mild peril in this book, it's actual peril. Um, and, you know, certainly there are points where I was thinking, oh my gosh, are they going to be all right? And having to read another chapter before I went to sleep because I wanted to check that they were going to be all right. So I'll read the blurb. Otherland is a dangerous magical underworld a place where appearances can be deceiving and anything can happen. A world of gods, vampires and fairies. It's also horrible. When lifelong friends, Myra and Rohan, discover that Rohan's baby sister Shilpa has been stolen and taken to Otherland, the only way to rescue her is by taking part in a deadly game. Three impossible challenges set by the fairy queen of the underworld. Win the game and Rohan and Myra can go home with Shilpa, but lose and they'll be trapped in Otherland forever. A darkly funny, action-packed fantasy adventure from the author of the highly acclaimed Dragon in the Library series. Now, I think Louis Stoll is a magnificent children's writer. I have talked about the Dragon in the Library series before. Um, what did you think about the book? Uh, what what were your kind of immediate reactions to it? I thought it was tremendous fun. You know, I thought it was a very good take on a classic idea, the stolen mm. child that you have to go into fairyland. I mean, but that is a good traditional idea yes. that you can build a story around. And what I really liked was how... She brings into Fairyland these two characters. You have Myra and you have Rohan, and they're character opposites. Rohan is very straight-laced. He's clearly quite book smart. He's a very well-behaved boy. Um, yes. And he's frequently irritated with Myra. Whereas Myra is a chaos goblin. Oh, she's absolutely... She, she is a force of nature. Yeah. I remember it says... Uh, very early on that the way she sees life a lot of things happened which weren't her fault they just happened because of things she did yes <laughs> <laughs> like setting fire to sheds and oops sorry <laughs> yeah I just 
gesticulated and I whacked my fan, sorry, um, like setting fire to sheds because she let off fireworks and that kind of thing. Super um, gluing Rohan's cousin's hair to her face because she was trying to make it look glossier. Yeah. <laughs> that, she's, that full was of, cool. she's full of impulses and ideas and the fact that they almost always go wrong does not persuade her to stop being like that. No. And that that makes them a tremendously fun pair to go through Fairyland with. But I also really like the way that Louis Stoll shows that this gives them different reactions to Fairyland. Yes. Sometimes, which means that sometimes you should be listening to Myra and sometimes you should be listening to Rohan. Yeah. And there's a wonderful moment quite near the end where one of the trials is that um, they have to face what they think is a person that they care about very much, uh, telling them, I don't love you because, yeah. and it turns out it's just a fairy tricking them by revealing their deepest fears. But what Rohan gets told is, I don't love you because there's nothing special about you mm. at all. You just hope that if you behave well enough, people won't notice how worthless you are. Yes. Whereas Myra thinks it's her mother telling her, I wish I'd never had you. You mm. just cause chaos because you're totally selfish and you don't care about anyone but yourself. And I thought that these would be the deepest fears of kids who have these characters. Made the whole thing have a depth that made their interactions with Fairyland I think much more textured than yes than you could have gotten away with and still told a fun story it's it just feels like a lot better than it needs to be which is one of my favorite things about when somebody makes something it's just it's subtler and it's more compassionate than it has to be one of the one thing that I really love about children's fantasy fiction and one of the things that I, I particularly appreciate about um, really good authors and really really good books is that they again it's a thing about having high expectations of your readers mm. so as an adult reading these this book I know that like there's a character called Queen Mab oh she's called Mab Mm. And there's obviously the um, Renaissance poet, uh, Philip Sidney's poem mm. about Queen Mab and the court of Queen Mab. And it's a, a traditional name for a queen of the fairies. Uh, Gloriana uh, of being the name of the current queen of the fairies. And Gloriana is what uh, Elizabeth I was often known as. So mm. there's that kind of relation to um, classic uh, ideas about fairies and so on uh, they're mean these fairies are not twee little you know twinkle bell fairies they're horrible and that's also a very kind of traditional idea about fairies fairyland is not fun fairyland is scary and all like they're twee sometimes yeah but it's feel like it yeah <laughs> sinisterly twee it's yeah. not yeah there's, um, a, there's a line I marked, actually. There's no such thing as fairies, said Matt. Excuse me. There's no such thing as good fairies, said yes. Matt. Or bad fairies either. Just fairies. Yeah. They're and, completely without morals at all. 
And like her laugh is described as like glass smashing on diamonds, Ooh. which I thought was well brilliantly graphic and conveying sort of the beauty and the unpleasantness as well. I think that's something that Nichols and Stowell have in common, that they can both turn a really Ooh. vivid image. But this idea of fairies, I think is, I mean, it's it's a thing I did in Hidden Things. She's she's mm. talking about herself for a moment. Oh, but, go for it. Um, but I think it's becoming something people are more interested in. Mm. The pre-Victorian fairy, which yes. is the folktale, morally ambiguous, tempter, mm. taker of offence, and basically something that is a different species from you but can think like you. So it just yes. does not feel the same compunction towards you that, that you would expect a human to. And like uh, the, the poem I took uh, the title In the Heart of Hidden Things from, it's by Charlotte Mew. Mm. And that uses the phrase not quite bad and not quite good. Mm. And that there's this, in a way that's more eerie than the fun, we just really love being bad because you know where you stand with somebody who who loves being bad yeah. whereas fairies who are just not on your side they're on their own side yes is i think it's something that people are becoming more interested in i mean the the victorians did go through a very twee phase mm. with fairies and i think it may have put people off fairies for a bit but i have a bit of sympathy with the victorians because i have this theory that you know the victorians were dealing with the industrial revolution mm. they were dealing with pre-modern medicine they were dealing with crowded cities and impoverished countrysides and workhouses and wars and all sorts of stuff i think they were stressed i don't yeah. think that they were naturally cutesy i think that they liked sparkly twinkly little fairies in the same way that you know modern humans will share wholesome memes and lol yeah it's you're stressed and you're scared and you need something to cheer you up. So here's something like hypercharged cute. Yeah. But but I think that there's more story to be got out of the fairy that's not that. Oh, yes. And um, I mean, one of the, the, the fairies in this book reminded me very much of um, Terry Pratchett's elves. Mm, Lords and Ladies, right? Lords and Ladies, and also the first Tiffany Aching book, uh, We Free Men. Oh, yes. In that um, the fair, the queen of the elves uh, in uh, We Free Men is basically selfish. Mm. She, she's totally selfish. She also steals a child. She steals Tiffany's little brother. And Tiffany has to go to Fairyland to go and find her brother. Mm. Uh, armed with a frying pan and obviously with the wee free men to help her um is the frying pan iron yes I'm remembering that right. yes but so that she can smack the fairies because fairies yeah. don't like iron and you know yeah, yeah, and Myra the, has yeah i mean i built the whole of uh, in hard hidden things around yes. the whole folk tale that fairies don't like iron so my yeah blacksmiths it's a you can do so much with the idea that fairies don't like iron well that's that's why people lots of people still have a horseshoe over mm. their door, isn't it? To to stop the fairy folk or any kind mm. of of um, magical person coming in. And an old used horseshoe would be cheap. Oh, of course, but you've got to 
you've got to put it the right way up so the luck doesn't fall out of it. Yeah. I remember that one. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, it's it's a very traditional feel and it, and that makes it rooted, I think, um, mm. and, and very have a lot of depth. Mm. So um, you've, we've talked a little bit about um, Myra and Rohan, but what I find very particularly interesting is the way that the relationship between the two mothers is sort of mm. hinted at because Myra and Rohan were born on the same day. Shortly after they both were born, they stopped breathing and there was a lot of intervention to, mm. to bring, them, uh, bring them back. And because of that, there's like this tear in the time-space continuum, mm. which means that the, man, the fairies can get in. And that's how the Queen of the Fairies gets into Rohan's house. And when everybody isn't paying attention to Shilpa, she can steal the baby mm. and, and make her a changeling. And that is so interesting to me. Mm. You can sort of imagine as an adult, not even an adult who's had their own children, but an adult, like that moment of stress and terror and how the two mothers became sort of trauma bonded mm. over that, because there is no way that they could ever be friends in real <laughs> life they're so different so um do you what did you think about the the two mums and, and how they're portrayed yes well I mean I am the mum of somebody who is more like Myra than like Rohan so I think I um I inclined more to sympathize well what it really reminded me of is that awful moment you get when your kid has, with the best will in the world, done something that most people wouldn't consider socially acceptable. Yes. yes. And at the other end is this person who, if you think about it rationally, they're just like, but this is my kid who I have as much responsibility to protect as you do yours. Yeah. And if your kid does certain things, my kid is still a kid and I can't really be blamed for wanting to protect them. Yes. You're standing there going, yeah, but if everybody in the world does this, then yeah. my kid's going to have no one. And yeah. in the case of Myra's mother, and, you know, Rohan, she sort of, Rohan has to be friends with her. Yeah. Because they went through this bonding experience. You know, please, please don't, you know, don't give up on Myra. She, yeah. Yeah. She yeah. needs people. Yes. Yeah. Like, like you, uh, my, I went through an experience, well, my stepson and his mum and dad and I all went through an experience of dropping friendships, dropping off as he got older and his behaviour became so markedly different from the behaviour of other children. And then, yeah, as soon as he's got his diagnosis, then yeah, mm -hmm. no more friends. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's very, yeah, very hard. Mm. Yeah. And like my son is, he's autistic and he has ADHD and he's, uh, he's just left his primary school and is going to special school next September. And one of the biggest reasons we wanted him to go to special school, apart from the fact that his needs would be better met there was, I was like, he's, I've got to get him introduced to other special needs kids. Yes. Who yeah. are going to be in the same place as him. Yeah. And are not going to go, well, that that's strange. Why are you doing that? But are like, oh, well, you you think about Hoovers all day. Well, 
I think about trains all day. Yes. You, you know, the special needs kids are often a lot less judgmental. Than yeah. Children. And, and I mean, being judgmental is a learning phase in itself. So, you know, yeah. you can't judge kids for being kids. But, uh, but yeah, I can certainly relate to the mother's, um, well, to Myra's mother being more motivated to keep the friendship going yeah. than Rohan's mother. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that probably it's quite good for Rohan to have a friend who lets him experience the misbehaving side of life. Yes, I, I think one of the is that Rohan probably feels a bit bad about himself that he never does anything daring. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's, he's very much someone who relies on structure and he mm. finds a lack of structure terrifying. Whereas Myra could actually do with a bit more structure in her life and, and to know that her mum cares about her because she kind of experiences her mum's lack of boundaries as being, mm. my mum doesn't really care. And, and yeah. things, I think it's actually just Myra's mother is very like her, only yeah. maybe a bit less so. Yeah. They're both creative, impulsive, chaotic people. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so I, it's quite touching, I think. I think it's, it's very, uh, it is a very, very affecting book. There's a lot of emotional depth to it as well as a lot of, you know, excitement and um, the uncanny nature of other worlds. Mm. Um, you know, what, what, did you, what did you make of that? I, I really, really liked it. I love that there are sort of two visions of the other world. There's, to get to the fairyland, you have to pass through a place that they call the meantime, mm. where everything is the same like it's just I think sand and a flat sea and nothing happens and nothing changes mm. and there's so little chaos that it's basically a dead place which mm. Rohan feels a bit safer in yeah. and Myra finds dreadful and but fairies are like I'm gonna die if I stay here too long because yeah. it's just draining everything from me but then when you get into fairyland Everything is like the grass smells like butterscotch and the flowers are as shiny as hubcaps. And you get the impression, not that it's a place with its own ecosystem so much as it's a place that's just ruled by whim. Yes. And, you know, the grass smells like butterscotch today. Tomorrow it might smell of ink. Who knows? Yeah, it, it's totally constructed. Mm. And that, that is, it's constructed by the will of Gloriana. And mm. so you cannot rely on anything in there. Mm. You can't trust anything. Mm. Nothing is what it seems like. And that, that kind of uncanny valley thing of mm. like, the, it's just that little bit off kilter so mm. that it's weird. And, um, and it, I really appreciated that. And I think the fact that it's an illusion yeah. also helps with the idea that they want to get back because there are some children's stories where um, a child is trapped in an amazing magical world and they're trying desperately to get home and fine. But as a child, you think, but why? It's just yeah. so much more interesting where you are. Whereas Otherland is so clearly that it's not really alive. You are just living in the personality yeah. of somebody who is not nice. Yeah. 
it means that, yeah, of course you want to get out of here because it's wildly unstable and it's not, it's not for you. You cannot have a home here mm. unless you stop being what makes you you mm. because it, you have to lose any sense of a stable personality. Yes. And that's a kind of death in itself. And you, you yourself become constructed yeah. by Gloriana. Yeah. So it, it's lively, but what it's not is alive. Yes, yes. And um, I really liked Mab. I mm. thought as a character, she was fabulous. She's like David Bowie. David Bowie <laughs> is a fairy. And, you know, the way she dresses, her flamboyance, her like, hey, I'm fabulous. And I loved at the end of the book that she escapes sorry spoilers she escapes but she's wearing sunglasses and like yeah well uh you humans humans don't wear sunglasses indoors and at night it's just oh ordinary humans don't but i am not ordinary and you kind of think i'm going to be a cool human i'm going to be fabulous <laughs> i i loved that about her it just was well, there, there was something of the fun aunt about her I yes think. yes Which yeah means... you, you can imagine kind of seeing her you know clubbing or you know seeing her you know at uh you know turning up at amazing parties and so people are like who's that don't really know I'm not sure, but I don't want to admit it because that might make me uncool by not knowing who this fabulous, cool person is. Well, yeah, I'll, I thought she was amazing. I'll tell you what, it's something that's in, a, in an odd way in common with Nichols, that um, they both find ways of relating the magic world to the real world. Yes. And I think ma making Mab sort of like a cool aunt who you might, you know, maybe kids might go out into the real world and see very dressed up adults and think, oh, is that a bit like Mab? And could have a yeah. lot of fun pretending it was. And in Nichols, it's much more pastoral. It's, yeah. uh, he gives an instruction list for what for how to take a fallen chestnut and turn it into a talisman that might take you to the magic wood. Yes. I remember as a kid thinking, I wonder if that would work because I was a child. And yeah. <laughs> probably not. These stories never do seem to, but I do wish it would. Yeah. But I think in their very different styles, they're both appealing to the child to take it out into the real world and find lively ways of looking at the real world and carrying the fun of the story with them, which yeah. is a good thing to do. Yes. And I, yeah, I, I did like the fact that um, Rohan and Myra's home seems like a place that children could you know, urban, suburban children mm. could, like, well, we live on, like, a, you know, they, Myra and her mum clearly live in a slightly more bohemian part of town, slightly more rundowns, a bit dodgier. But it when they market. turn into Rohan's, you know, it's very kind of pristine. It's very ordinary. Um, mm. and, and then, you know, Myra's mum is thinking, oh, God, isn't this boring? But you can sort of, well, a person that lives in Myra's part of town, a person that lives on a suburban dormitory area, you know, of, of uh, commuter belt land, 
could mm. still have an adventure. You know, you don't, yeah. you, you don't have to be living in the countryside and you don't have to be living in a city. You know, you can have, adventure can be found anywhere. And I, I, I appreciated that because there was a period of time when every kind of adventure story I read was set in rural and, mm. and I didn't live in a place like that. Mm. So it was sort of a bit like, oh, I can't really have an adventure because mm. I live in, where I grew up was very much like where Rohan lived, in mm. kind of a very sort of ordinary, sort of suburban dormitory town of London. And, and it was nice to think, oh, yeah, yeah, I, c- I could have that kind of adventure too. It's one of the reasons why The Tiger Who Came to Tea is such an important book was such an important book for me as a child. Oh, it's so charming, the tiger who came to tea. That, the cafe that, they have dinner in, in the end. That was like the cafe in my town, or like a cafe in my town. And we, you know, where my nan used to take me to have egg and chips. So, yeah, I could possibly have a tiger coming to tea at my house. Yes, I remember very, very, very exciting. I remember being very annoyed with Enid Blyton saying at the end of one of her books, adventures always come to the adventurous. And I, I just kind of thought, oh, up yours, mate. Nothing like this ever happens to me or to anything I know. Because that's false advertising. Yes. Do you mind, Dina Blyton? No, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, we, we need to have uh, parents who don't mind if we go cycling on holiday for five weeks. Yeah, and a private we island. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this has been Although such she was fun. accidentally very trans positive. Yes, yeah, very it, much so. She was so so gender stereotypical that she kind of looped around the other side <laughs> and came out woke. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we we all know we all know George would would carry on being George. Um, most yeah, I think the only difference nowadays is that George would have insisted on being referred to as he, uh, or they. Yeah, mm. yeah, most definitely. I, I feel like George would have gone with he. I, I, I feel like George would not like to be seen as non-binary. George is very clear that George is a boy. Yes, but. very much that. Well, thank you so much, Kit. This has been so much fun. Oh, well, yeah, lovely talking to you. Where can listeners find you online? Well, um, In the Heart of Hidden Things is on Amazon and it's also on Audible. Uh, if they want to find me online, probably the best way is Twitter. I am mm. at Kit Whitfield. I'll put a link in the show notes. Yep. Um, I I tweet pictures that, well, one of the things I do on, on Twitter is I tweet pictures that remind me of the kind of things that my characters might see. Yes. And comments on them in the style that my characters might make with the hashtag Ask a Fairy Smith. It's so, very charming. I oh, really, really enjoy your, your Twitter and if anybody yeah. And if anyone wants to play with me, do hashtag ask a fairy smith at me because I I love doing that. It's it feels like a way of using Twitter that's not just getting mad at strangers. You know? Yes, yes. I would much rather play and have fun. So yeah, at Kit Whitfield hashtag ask a fairy smith. Brilliant. I will put links to that in the show notes as well. Well, it's been so nice, lovely chatting to you, and um, listeners. Thank you listening to episode 26 of fantasy book swap you can find us on twitter at fantasy swap on facebook at fantasy book swap or email fantasy at gmail.com and i promise i will 
remember how to check my email one day. You can subscribe at most of your favourite fantasy places, uh, podcast places, or download from Podbean. Please do rate and review if you can. It helps to satisfy my vanity. Thanks to Steve Vapor Trails production assistance and to Jack Sadler Johnson for the use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time, bye.